and welcome to the Hindus Parley, a podcast that tries to look at an issue from different and sometimes differing points of view. Today we're going to look at the ongoing Russia-Ukraine conflict and how the international world order as we knew it failed to prevent it. With me today are two former diplomats who are now academics and experts in specific areas of diplomacy. Ambassador Ashok Mukherjee was permanent representative of India to the United Nations 2013 to 2015, and he has that perspective. Uh, he's also served in other capitals like London, Moscow, Washington. Uh, he was part of opening some of India's embassies in former Soviet states like Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan in 1992. Uh, Former Ambassador Dr. Mohan Kumar, uh, he's now Professor and Dean of the Office of International Affairs and Global Initiatives at Jindal Global University. Uh, prior to that, he too was a diplomat. Uh, he retired as India's Ambassador to France. He's going to bring us some of that European perspective. He was also the lead negotiator for India, represented India at the WTO. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, uh, both of you, Ambassador Mukherjee and uh, Ambassador Kumar. Thank you very much for having us. Uh, thank you, Swadhani. I want to start really by asking both of you about uh, whether, you know, the present situation. First, there is Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine. That's the only way to put it after the events of the last few days. Uh, and also NATO sanctions. Do they fit in in any way to the international rule of order that was imagined 75 years ago in post-World War Europe? Uh, and has that international order uh, simply failed now? Um, Ambassador Mukherjee, would you like to go first? Well, yes. Uh, well, I think that what we saw uh, with the invasion of Ukraine uh, uh, a few days ago is part of an ongoing process. Uh, the international order created in 1945 rested on certain uh, assumptions and, and obligations. The assumptions were that the international order would uh, prioritize peace and development and uh, that uh, there would be institutions, not only the United Nations as a universal institution, but supportive institutions like the IMF, the World Bank and the International Trade Organization as three pillars to sustain the peace and, uh, and, to, and to provide mankind with uh, the, this uh, framework for uh, sustainable development. Now, that was the vision, and those were the structures. But in 1946 uh, and by 1947, the first jolt to uh, this vision came with the Cold War, which uh, I would date to uh, Winston Churchill's um, speech at Fulton, Missouri, where he talked about the Iron Curtain descending on Europe. And uh, that accelerated a polarization of uh, the great powers uh, in two blocks from uh, 1947 till 1989. And then when uh, the Cold War ended and uh, the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union dissolved itself, there was an expectation that we would go back to the vision of 1945 uh, and uh, recreate a world and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, integrate ourselves. But uh, unfortunately, and, and some of uh, the commentators uh, who have studied this issue deeply in uh, both the United States and in Europe uh, have pointed to this, that there was a choice uh, before the preeminent power of the day in 1992-93, which was the United States of America, on which road to take. 
And they decided to take the road of containment and confrontation through uh, carrying on with NATO. So uh, the reason why NATO exists today is, uh, of course, today it's clearer because it has got a, a, a target. Uh, it has got an, uh, uh, an enemy to which it is supposed to respond, which is uh, Russia. But in 1992, uh, those of us who served in Russia remember that it was the United States which actually wrote the constitution for Russia to make it into a democracy. And then Strobe Talbot has written a book called The Russia Hand, which explains all this in great detail. So I think that this choice has therefore had an impact, but it took some time for this impact to be felt because it was only in 2007 that uh, Vladimir Putin, president of Russia after Yeltsin, made this point uh, at a NATO meeting that uh, the, the way NATO was expanding into uh, the near uh, uh, abroad of Russia, into Russia's immediate neighborhood, was a security problem for Russia. Now, uh, I don't think anybody uh, actually responded to that, uh, but they carried on with uh, 2008, the inclusion of Georgia and, and then Ukraine into uh, NATO as uh, prospective uh, members. And, and, and I think that that was a, a reason. I'm not justifying what is happening, but I'm saying that this is a reason to put it in context. And then, of course, uh, the immediate provocation uh, is uh, uh, from 2014 onwards, because in 2014, the uh, Ukrainian president was forced to flee from, uh, from uh, Kiev and replaced by uh, uh, another government which got elected. And of course, uh, uh, that uh, led to uh, uh, a conflict within Ukraine uh, between the eastern part of Ukraine, Donbas, uh, and uh, the western and the remaining part of Ukraine. And uh, the two and 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 this conflict was regulated by a permanent member of the Security Council, France, through the Normandy process, which initiated in uh, 2014 on the anniversary of the Normandy landings in Europe, right. and uh, resulted in the Minsk Agreement. So the question today, and I'd like to end with that, uh, the question today is why did the Minsk agreement uh, fail and why was it not implemented? And why did the Security Council of the United Nations, which endorsed the Minsk agreement in 2015, why did that Security Council not actually uh, uh, implement and, and, and ensure that the Minsk agreement, which is endorsed by the Security Council, was not implemented? Because they have enforcement powers under Articles 41 and 42 of the Charter. And they've used it in other parts of the world. So I think this is the failure of the Security Council, the failure of European powers, uh, which is equally uh, responsible uh, as, the, as the choice made by the United States in, in the 1990s to actually carry on with NATO. So this is a part of the picture which I think uh, is important to also recognize. Interesting. Uh, <clears throat> Ambassador Mohan Kumar, uh, Ambassador Mukherjee seems to suggest that it's not the order, the international order that has failed as much as a kind of reversion to the Iron Curtain moment. What's your take on how the UN and in general, uh, the post-World War II order has stood up to the current uh, tensions? So thank you very much. I'll begin by saying that it's hard to argue with the historical account uh, provided by my colleague, Ambassador Mukherjee. That's all of that is absolutely correct. I would begin by saying that uh, such things have happened in the past, but I do believe two wrongs don't make a right. So that is the first thing I would say. I would also agree with him that this is probably the lowest point reached ever by the UN Security Council in terms of you know, not being to 
able to agree even on the most fundamental things, frankly. And I think it, uh, it is also a reflection of the fact that we do not have a settled international order, that we are in the middle of a world adrift, and we are moving from something like a unipolar moment to a very, very messy multipolar world order, which is yet to take shape. And in that sense, uh, you will see powers jostling. And in Russia's case, uh, it's, it's extremely complicated because uh, there are so many past accumulated grievances which Ambassador Mukherjee referred to. And so the world is left to face this very, very messy transition. And I see really this as evidence of this very difficult transition that the world order is going through, frankly. All right. Could I ask you, uh, Ambassador Mukherjee, if you feel just what Russia has done in the past week, perhaps, uh, the, uh, the pushing in of Russian troops, the bombardment of uh, places in Ukraine and including now today, uh, Kiev, Kharkiv, Sumy, other, other places under Russian fire. Is that by itself a violation of the UN Charter? And has this entire process just been made more complicated, really, by the fact that perhaps at the UN Security Council, no, uh, real, uh, veto, uh, no real resolution could go through against Russia? Yes, I agree. It's a violation of the Charter. And as an Indian, I would agree uh, immediately because uh, the violation of uh, the territorial integrity of states and the sovereignty of states is one of the principles which actually uh, binds the United Nations, which created the United Nations project. And as an Indian, uh, we are the, one of the first victims of the violation of this principle in, uh, in 1948, January, when our territory was violated and occupied by Pakistan and was never vacated despite the Security Council dealing with it. So we have also a view on how uh, the Security Council functions when faced with the violation of this principle of the UN Charter. It's in our own case. So uh, I, I agree with, uh, with you that it is a violation of the UN Charter. Now, the point here is that the United Nations uh, uh, structure has tried to respond to this, knowing that the permanent members and their veto uh, 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 deadlock the Security Council and don't let the Security Council act. Because while uh, today Russia has uh, vetoed this resolution, which was co-sponsored by 80 countries uh, in the United Nations Security Council, not very long ago, the United States uh, also vetoed a resolution uh, condemning Israel's uh, activities in, in its uh, uh, occupied territories. And, and, and this uh, tit for tat goes on, as Ambassador Mohan Kumar has said, uh, two wrongs never make a right. And I agree with that. But I think that it's important also to look at uh, uh, how, uh, the, the, how, how can we move uh, uh, to, to, to something that can actually bring back the vision of uh, 1945, which I referred to, which is sure. a, a peaceful, interdependent and forward-looking world order. And I think that those who have uh, tried to uh, to duck the, the issue, uh, which was flagged in 1945 during the negotiations on the UN Charter, need actually now to take a call. And, and that is that the, the drafters of the UN Charter knew that this document uh, had to uh, face the reality test of events on the ground. So they wrote into the charter, and many treaties have the same provision, that in 10 years' time, the charter would be reviewed. That is Article 109 of the charter. Now, that the, the response of the permanent members is that, no, you can never do that because we will veto whatever rec recommendation you make to amend the charter. 
and uh, from 1979 onwards that has focused itself on this issue issue of un security council reform but i would take a step back and go uh, into the first speech that india made in 1946 at the first general assembly session saying that this is the this is the commitment uh, with which india signed the charter that the charter is not set in stone the charter has to be amended and reviewed and there is a provision in article 109 for a general conference so i think the ukraine crisis should actually act as a catalyst for this general assembly of the united nations which is meeting as we speak to agree on convening a general conference to review the charter because if there are issues with the veto this is the place and and the framework legal framework to do it interesting uh, ambassador mohan kumar would you say that it is time really to reinvent the united nations look at all these issues like who's in the p5 look at all these issues uh, like who has the veto i totally agree i think it's long overdue and it should have been done long back and um, uh, i think if the ukraine crisis can get people to do that but uh, call me a pessimist if you will i see very slim prospects of that happening there are no angels in this conflict and i've been saying it loud and clear i mean there is accumulated grievances of russia without a doubt but uh, it's hard to justify what has happened so if the united nations is serious about really not even reinventing just to make it more relevant uh, my my deepest worry and i say i choose my words carefully is the total irrelevance of the un security council to the to the ordinary person in ukraine how does it matter what the security council does if it is not going to protect your life which is precious so i think that is the danger i see but um, you know i was telling somebody that i looked very closely at the sino russian joint statement and the statement is all about uh, supporting the existing world order here you are asking us about the transformation of the world order but both china russia in the joint statement talk about preserving the existing order and there is not a single word about un reform in that in that entire 5000 word joint statement so we've we are seeing a un security council which is completely paralyzed so i agree that this is the perfect moment to do it but if you ask me whether i would wager it will happen my answer would be no right uh, interesting that you said the irrelevance of the un security council really to those who are on the ground what is also significant to me is all the talk of action because what we've seen in the un security council resolutions have all been about condemning deploring uh, asking for a ceasefire and so forth uh, but all the action so far in terms of sanctions have actually happened outside the un security council and i want to ask both of you about the legalities ar ar around this given that you know we have seen a globalized system we have seen in the world trade organization uh, but uh, if you look at the actions taken by the us and by uh, europe uh, by the eu uh, apart from just a ban on banks and individual sanctions on them what they're saying quite publicly is they want to isolate russia economically so that includes other things like no flights uh, no overflight rights no civilian movement really between you know russians going anywhere else um, to these countries no business dealings excising russia from the swift system uh, ambassador mohan kumar if i could start with you are we seeing a kind of complete breakdown of the uh, not just the world order but the global economic order as well 
I think the global economic order is sought to be rearranged, if you like, and it goes back to you know people moving away from MFN, the resilient supply chain that people are talking about, and this adds to the whole problem. I, I need to say uh, two or three things, if you allow me. One um, that I think these are the most uh, wide-ranging sanctions uh, that at least I have seen. But having said that, there are some loopholes. One, for example, in 2019, 60% of Russia's exports was energy. And energy exports are not forbidden from Russia. So the energy exports are not forbidden for two political reasons. One, Europe will suffer and Germany will suffer if that happens. And secondly, I think the United States is heading towards a midterm election and I don't think the US would also want gas prices to go up. So that's, that's one part of uh, the loophole that I see. The second that I see is that even Gazprom, you can do dealings with it provided you process the payment through non-American banks. So it's not as if every bank in Russia has been uh, subject to the SWIFT uh, order. And, and as it is in any case, you can, I'm, I'm told even the crypto mining, cryptocurrency can offer a way out for Russia. I think Iran has been using that for a long time. So I would say that, yes, there are some asset freeze, freezes and travel bans against individuals. There, there's definitely the sovereign debt rating of Russia, which has been reduced to junk status overnight. Certainly a big change in the German position, because otherwise the sanctions would have meant nothing. But having said that, BlackRock is the biggest holder of Russian sovereign debt. The Central Bank of Russia holds $630 billion, which will be blocked. So all that is absolutely devastating for Russia. But bear in mind that Russia has been under sanctions from 2014. And these things will take time to take effect because I think of the fact that Germany can still continue to do energy exports, sorry, Russia, and Russia controls supply chains in the, in the, in the metals of titanium, palladium, and neon. In other words, Russia is a full spectrum commodity superpower. So it is not going to be that easy. I mean, I agree, the sanctions are really devastating, wide ranging, but, I think the Russians have been fully prepared for this. And as long as they can get away with energy exports, as long as they can get away with the fact that some banks will do business with them using non-American banks and so on. And then, of course, you have to see what China is going to do vis-a-vis -vis Russia. That's a big question mark for me, whether China will come to the rescue of Russia or not. Sure. In fact, it is interesting how if you looked at the global map, um, half of it is taking all the actions uh, and it would seem the other half all the way until you hit Japan and Australia is more or less staying in the middle. Uh, Ambassador Mukherjee, how do you see these economic sanctions? Are they actually playing around with what had been agreed to in terms of globalization, in terms of uh, the global economic order uh, in an attempt to isolate Russia? And of course, totally take the point that for the moment hydrocarbons, for the moment uh, fuel is being kept out of it. Well, uh, I think it's uh, important to recognize what is happening. Uh, 
And again, uh, I'm not an apologist for Russia, but I do want to make this point that it's for the first time an initiative has been taken to weaponize uh, this entire economic uh, sector uh, uh, through the use of uh, such uh, wide-ranging sanctions. And there have been calls to even remove uh, Russia from the World Trade Organization uh, by some Western countries. So I think we need to uh, look at it in uh, the, 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 the terms of the structure. You just, in, in your last comment, mentioned about the global map and where the support is. I would like to just put a fact on the table. And that is that the resolution that got vetoed in the Security Council on Ukraine had 80 countries co-sponsoring it. But out of those 80 countries, the vast majority were European uh, countries and Latin American countries. From the 54 countries of Africa, there were only two co-sponsors. From the 54 countries of Asia Pacific, there were only five co-sponsors. And that uh, contains a message of its own. The world of 108 countries of Asia and Africa want to move on and get on with their life, fight for the TRIPS waiver that they are doing in the WTO, etc. They uh, have already gone through what Ukraine is going through in their own experiences. I mean, in our neighborhood, we've gone through Afghanistan and everybody's forgotten about Afghanistan today. But uh, the Secretary General of the United Nations on the 26th of January reported to the Security Council that families in Afghanistan are selling their babies to get food. Is that not an equally important concern for people as what is happening in Ukraine? And I think this is a point which needs to be uh, uh, put in front of uh, us when we look at it. The second point is the sanctions and the legality of the sanctions which you asked me. Now, under Article 25 of the Charter, and it's a charter as a legal treaty, all members of the United Nations have to implement uh, the decisions of the Security Council, uh, including under Article 41, which is the economic sanctions uh, mandate of the Security Council. Now, as long as Russia has the veto in the Security Council, there will be no Security Council resolution uh, uh, affirming sanctions against Russia. And that's a, that's a given. So therefore, we have now seen the uh, resort to what in uh, uh, terms of the UN treaty is unilateral sanctions. These are not uh, uh, supported by the UN Security Council. So they are unilateral sanctions. And uh, when we look at unilateral sanctions, which we have been doing even, even in our own case, we have to make up our mind whether we as a country which fought against colonial rule and became independent will today accept the extraterritorial application of domestic laws of other countries. This is a political question. It's also an economic question facing the test of the reality that many of our uh, companies and entities are integrated into the global marketplace and therefore will face the impact of decisions taken in uh, Washington, D.C. or in Brussels. And, we, uh, and, and how do we move uh, around it, uh, away from it? Now, there has been uh, attempt to say that, you know, you can use cryptocurrencies and you can use some other way. But here, if you look at it in terms of the international structure, a holistic structure, we are actually then collaborating in the balkanization of that structure by go, going around it, by going. And therefore, I think we need to actually face the issue head on, which is that you have to, uh, if the system has not worked, and it has not worked because the five countries which have been given the role of the policemen of the world in 1945 have not uh, enabled it to work. It includes China, it includes Russia, but it also includes France, the United Kingdom, and the United States of America. We have to call them out because none of them are interested in reform. The United States itself in, uh, in the parliament in India promised reform of the Security Council in 2010 when President Barack Obama spoke. But on the ground in the negotiations, they don't open their mouths. 
So I think that we have to actually call out these things. I mean, it's not uh, that we have to live in a world dominated by the, the powers of the 20th century. We have to make our own uh, uh, vision of what, where we are and how we want things to be. I, I do want to come to all these double standards, but could I ask uh, both of you at this point, uh, given how important the issues that are being discussed are, and given as both of you have spoken uh, about the different parts of um, uh, you know, what we're seeing, whether it is the Russian actions, whether it is the NATO and the Western countries' uh, actions, is India's consistent abstention at the UN Security Council, at the UN uh, Human Rights Council, possibly the UNGA, is India's consistent abstention in a sense does it behove India's aspirations as a global leader? Ambassador Mukherjee? I think India's abstention is in India's interest. And it is not only India, but also the United Arab Emirates, which also abstained. And both of us have explained it to the public in response to the question you asked, that we have abstained to, to leave and create a room for diplomacy. If we, do, if we did not abstain and if we join uh, uh, the majority, then who is left to find a diplomatic solution to this conflict, which is taking the lives of people on the ground as we speak? And there is no military solution uh, that can be sustained on the ground. It has to be a diplomatic solution, a political solution. And who will bring this political solution if they are all uh, sort of uh, in black and white? You need a gray area in diplomacy to find solutions. And I think that that is what has imbued the position of both India and the United Arab Emirates. And both of these countries have said so publicly. So I think that this point of you're with us or you're against us does not hold water in terms of what is the role of elected members of the Security Council on issues of war and peace. And both India and the UAE are from Asia. And I've given you the statistic, 54 countries of Asia, only five of them supported that resolution. Right. So, I mean, you have to also understand and respond to your own constituency. Correct. Uh, Ambassador Mohan Kumar, do you think India's abstention is in keeping with its uh, uh, with its aspirations on the global stage? I, I actually think uh, abstention is a very strong decision. Uh, I don't uh, uh, feel that abstention comes with negative connotations or sitting on the fence, people unable to decide. I think there are genuinely circumstances where I think abstention is a positive, strong decision. That's the way I see it. Having said that, uh, reacting to Ambassador Mukherjee's point about what is happening in the United Nations, the, the five Security Council members and so on, one way in which they can be called out, and I would be very interested in knowing he's definitely more of an expert on United Nations than I am. I really think this should be now taken to the General Assembly and see what the General Assembly, which is the court of public opinion in the UN for me, what does it think of all this? Because frankly, if the General Assembly doesn't think much of it, I think we can cry ourselves hoarse, but nothing will happen. And for me, then it'll have to be a change wholesale of the system. That means the system has become so rotten to the core that we will have to junk it completely you know, a full-scale junking of the system, you start thinking of something else. But I think there is a chance of making this point, what Ambassador Mukherjee was saying, I think take it to the General Assembly and see what the court of public opinion, the world opinion says. And if it, if it says what we uh, are saying, which is that the system is rotten, it needs to be reformed, it needs to be changed, 
I think you should get a sense of that from the General Assembly. Because if it doesn't, then I'm afraid, uh, speaking for myself, I would have completely lost confidence in the UN system. I think we've given the system a long time to reform itself. And if it doesn't, then I'm afraid the world will look at other things. You'll have a brief period of time like this when people unilaterally do whatever they want to do until, you know, some people meet and then start looking at building a system, uh, you know, from the ground up. I also want to make another point, if you allow me, on secondary sanctions, because I think what India has to be concerned, these are sanctions imposed on Russia. This will play itself out. But if you ask me how India is going to be affected, you'll have to look at secondary sanctions at some stage and see whether they also want third countries to do what they are doing to Russia. And that will, um, you know, you can read my mind, that will have implications for India. That is a moment I see when India will have to make some tough choices as well. Um, interesting. Uh, so to talk about the kind of double standards we've seen played out first, you look at the fact that uh, the global order has at various times said that we will isolate economies. Iran and North Korea, quite clearly the big examples. Um, and one of the things the West has constantly said to them, and in fact, the UN Security Council has said to them, is you must give up your nuclear weapons. Now you look at a situation where whether it was Libya or it was Ukraine, at various points, they were told by a united world, if you like, by this very international order, give up your nuclear weapons and we will ensure that you are not attacked or that you will not need them as a deterrent. Today, we look at a situation where Libya was bombed by NATO uh, under a distorted mandate on, uh, of uh, responsibility to protect. Uh, Ukraine has now been bombed by Russia. My question is, what is anyone going to take away as a message from this kind of uh, uh, this kind of uh, action by the this world order, the P5, if you like, if it isn't that it is better to keep your nuclear weapons, better to be, uh, be uh, keep your impunity because the international world order cannot guarantee your safety. Um, uh, uh, Ambassador Mukherjee. Well, I think uh, it's a very valid point. Uh, I just again, uh, I'm sorry to go back to history all the time, but uh, six weeks after the charter was signed, the first nuclear bomb was used by the United States on Japan. And uh, therefore, it was not part of the charter when the charter was conceptualized, but it has definitely become a reality of our lives. And then the slate of hand in which uh, the, the nuclear weapon states uh, uh, derailed the negotiations on nuclear disarmament uh, and uh, brought in the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty to give themselves the right to have nuclear weapons in perpetuity, while uh, the remaining uh, countries of the world were, as you said, uh, uh, dependent on uh, guarantees uh, of protection. I think that that world also has, uh, has now uh, uh, sort of been, uh, been broken up. And uh, countries which uh, have acquired nuclear weapons and declared that they are nuclear weapon states today uh, feel that they have in their hands a deterrence. But having said that, I think uh, the way technologies are also changing, uh, how, uh, how, how uh, confident can countries be that uh, the nuclear weapons they have in their, in their arsenal are deterrents? I mean, Russia itself has the largest number of nuclear warheads, but it has not been a deterrent for the sanctions that have been imposed on it. 
so uh, that goes into uh, into what uh, uh, what tools from this toolkit if i may use that popular word nowadays from this toolkit of diplomacy are being used now uh, for ukraine and even for kazakhstan uh, these were the countries of the former soviet union which hosted the nuclear weapons of the ussr but uh, uh, both these countries who are persuaded and belarus both uh, all, all of them all the all these uh, so called nuclear weapons uh, states in 1992 were persuaded uh, by the united states and uh, the uh, russian federation to give up their nuclear weapons on, on in exchange for a guarantee and in exchange also for something else and that was the assumption by russia of the obligations of the soviet union most people have forgotten that and when the ukrainian ambassador asked this question in the security council about russia's membership as a permanent member this is the answer that the the obligations were also taken on by russia it was russia under yeltsin which paid off the international debt of russia of the soviet union so when you take on obligations you acquire rights and that's how it is so i, I think that uh, both ukraine and probably uh, other countries which had uh, forewarned the nuclear option like brazil and south africa today all of them will be as you said very rightly will be rethinking their options Uh, Ambassador Mohan Kumar, do you see a kind of uh, uh, a fragmentation, really, of the fear the international world order had, the fear of a permanent five? Uh, uh, and I do want to ask about how India will react to it straight after this. But first, do you think that countries like Iran and North Korea, who have so far uh, been pushed into isolation, will say, "Well, there's really not much point giving up one's nuclear weapons or listening to this international order"? i completely agree with you i think horizontal nuclear proliferation is a real challenge i mean i keep reading stories about uae saudi arabia south korea you would think that a country like south korea which has seen enough in the past would not think about it but i think you're going to have more and more countries saying uh, it's probably you know in in everyone's best interest to have these weapons again the npt has to be rewritten this is the point i keep going back to the the thorough inability of multilateral institutions today to rewrite the rules whether it is wto about which i know a thing or two and ambassador mukherjee too where we are not able to rewrite the rules uh, the un security council and the reform again with the nuclear the npt that the blatant discrimination that is inherently there in the npt when are we going to rewrite the rules because they've already become irrelevant i i told you the unsc has become irrelevant i dare say the npt has become irrelevant certainly the wto has become irrelevant and that's why people are signing bilateral free trade agreements left right and center so so it is a real challenge because all the institution and this is a kind of a synchronized crisis if you like that extends to all multilateral institutions which were set up in the aftermath of world war 2 which have completely outlived their utility and they have to be redesigned and recrafted and re reworked and we are just totally incapable of doing it that i think is the existential challenge at least for multilateralism Sure. And may I ask a provocative question, if you like, about whether this comes closer home for India? Does this kind of action increase the risk, increase the fear of India facing a similar kind of cross-border transgression by China? 
And does it also free up India's chances of, say, uh, trying to uh, take back Pakistan-occupied Kashmir today? Uh, this kind of cross-border transgression that we have seen by a more powerful neighbor to a less powerful neighbor, does it have implications in the subcontinent as well, Ambassador Mohan Kumar? I don't think so, frankly, uh, because I hate drawing parallels. And, and, you know, this is, of course, an interesting parallel that you have drawn. But normally what I what I'm asked is, listen, what do you think will happen in Taiwan? Do you think China will do something now and so on? What you are saying is you're taking it one step. You're taking the parallel one step further. In international relations, it is my considered opinion that no two situations are exactly alike. India is not, uh, you know, uh, Pakistan is not Ukraine. India is not Russia. I think there are enough differences here. And uh, I do believe uh, that international relations um, in the broadest sense of the term will be judged on a case-by-case basis. I do not believe too much in domino effects. I do not believe in parallels between two different subcontinents where the issues are completely different. So my brief answer to your question is no, I don't see how I can make that um, uh, make that inference right now. Sure. Ambassador Mukherjee, the reason I ask it is because this became a big question. Uh, when it came to the Quad, when it came to the Indo-Pacific uh, a ministerial uh, conference at the European Union, the question whether what we are seeing play out in Europe has uh, has a kind of parallel uh, closer home in the Indian subcontinent and those two examples that I mentioned. I, I agree with Ambassador Mohan Kumar that uh, there are no two parallels uh, in international relations where you can take a lesson uh, learned from one uh, situation on one uh, part of the world and apply it, uh, uh, you know, as one size fits all. Because no size, uh, every situation is is different. And I think that uh, in this uh, context, uh, the focus on China in Asia needs to be uh, something that India will have to keep uh, you know talking about in uh, not only the context of our bilateral uh, relationship with China but also in a wider uh, international context and uh, I think therefore that uh, while the crisis in Ukraine has galvanized uh, activity in the West and focused uh, uh, the global attention through the media uh, uh, on the need for uh, the international structures to be more responsive, uh, it also, as I said earlier, provides India the, the scope to take a leadership role in calling for a general conference of the United Nations because the other multilateral structures are not as universal uh, in, in, in their scope and agenda. Uh, and, uh, and, and having a, a, a meeting of the 193 countries to rewrite, as Ambassador Mohan Kumar says, the rules. So, so uh, even if China and Russia and probably the United States don't want to participate in this, the fact is none of them can veto uh, the convening of a general conference that is written into the treaty of the UN Charter. So uh, it is important uh, for countries to actually take the leadership to, to, uh, to, to bring about uh, this platform. And in terms of the impact of uh, what has happened in Ukraine on India, I think that uh, uh, you know uh, we have uh, faced in the last uh, five to six years uh, uh, aggression across our borders, taking uh, you know uh, uh, disputing our territory, uh, conduct conduct the conduct of terrorist attacks on our on our citizens, etc. That has been going on, but we have ourselves taken uh, deterrent uh, measures to uh, to uh, respond to these challenges. 
And, uh, and in both these cases, whether it's with China or with Pakistan, it has come without the real support of the United Nations uh, structures, the permanent members, etc. I mean, they have, I would say, given lip service to supporting India, but when it comes to actually doing something, none of them have uh, been really involved in, in doing anything uh, to respond to these problems of ours. So we have to bring this perspective into the discussion, the broader discussion, from the perspective of developing countries. I think, you know, the, the constituency that we are part of and which we actually have to create in the United Nations, the constituency of decolonized uh, countries, which are today the group of 7,734 developing countries, that needs a leadership uh, uh, role as well. And I think India should actually uh, go back to the drawing board and start articulating more of these issues on behalf of these 134 countries, because otherwise they are torn between this you are with us or you are against us discussion, which uh, most of them, as I said, do not want to be part of. They have their own lives and their own priorities to, to, uh, to reach. Thank you. Okay, certainly been very, very interesting. I do want to ask at the end of this, I know no answers are black and white, uh, but if you do have uh, a sense of where this might be going. Uh, I would say over the last few years, COVID had, in a sense, dealt a kind of blow to uh, the UN system, the questions about WHO, the questions uh, about what the big powers were doing and how they were actually helping, um, uh, you know, with medicines and vaccines for the rest of the world. Um, in many ways, the might is right principle actually appears to be winning today. So my question to you really is, do you think what we have seen play out in Ukraine, Russia's actions, the West's sanctions, uh, and what may follow are going to be a death blow for the United Nations? Uh, Ambassador Mukherjee? Well, I think uh, there will be uh, probably not a death blow, but a major blow uh, to the United Nations structures as they are today. But I would say that they also open the door to reinvent the United Nations. And this is a process which has already been launched by the Secretary General who has called for a summit in 2023 on our common future. So uh, we are not uh, really uh, talking of uh, having a discussion. There's already action. The General Assembly has passed a resolution and they are preparing for this uh, summit of 2023. I think what Ukraine has done is to actually focus attention on how the summit needs to be forward looking and come up with some something that will make the UN and multilateral structures relevant for the world in which we live today. And I think that uh, to do that, uh, countries like India have to take a, a, a much uh, uh, more uh, visible leadership role to articulate what are the other issues on the multilateral agenda which also need to be looked at. And these are issues uh, in just two words that is encapsulated in the UN lexicon, sustainable development issues, which also bring in something that we have never talked about, but which we must talk about, which is the digital technology that is changing the way we live and the changing the way we interact, and right. even changing the way the wars are being conducted. There is no international framework for regulating the use of this technology. So India is among the countries which must actually take the lead in these things. And to do that, and that's the answer to probably what you wanted to ask me, it's no longer just for governments to do it. Governments have to uh, enlist uh, what, they, what in the UN jargon they call stakeholders. Uh, they have to enlist uh, partners. Uh, to, to, to create this new uh, responsive structure. It will be something that will be very difficult for countries which are totally dominated by governments to, to agree to. 
But sure. it is something that, uh, for example, uh, India has said in the United Nations at the 75th anniversary that we have a whole of society approach to governance. So if we are among the countries which are actually walking the talk on a whole of society approach to governance, then this is the time to try and bring this approach to a broader multilateral framework. Thank you. Right. Uh, Ambassador Mohan Kumar, perhaps Ambassador Mukherjee speaking more about reinventing the UN system, re-energizing it rather than dismantling it completely. What is your view on what this kind of crisis, the Ukraine crisis is going to do? Is it a death blow to the organization? I think uh, actually that there is a very brief window. I, I agree with the Ambassador Mukherjee to the extent that this crisis provides an opportunity, but for me, the, the window is going to be very brief. Because if you look at it and the, the P5 powers start thinking, what if Russia had not had a veto? How do you think the Security Council would have played out? There would have been severe condemnation because there were 11 members of the Security Council who were willing to condemn Russia and who were able to tell Russia that you must withdraw and that sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine must be restored. So imagine for a moment if Russia did not have a veto. And so that I fear and call, call me cynical, call me a pessimist. It will, it will make the, the veto holders believe that the veto is what saves them from international scrutiny and for being able to do what they do and get away with it. So my view is, yes, there is a brief window for getting it right. I am very, very skeptic about whether that window will be used by everybody. But I do agree with Ambassador Mukherjee, India has nothing to lose and everything to gain by using this window, using the available instruments, going to the court of public opinion and making our case strongly. Certainly very interesting views on how this Ukraine crisis is uh, impacting the current world order, as uh, I think former uh, U.S. Secretary of State and before that ambassador to the U.N., Madeleine Albright once said, uh, if the U.N. didn't exist, we would invent it. So what would we invent uh, if uh, this kind of a crisis is prolonged and is does not get resolved in the near future. I'd like to thank our guests on Parley, Ambassador Ashok Mukherjee, Ambassador Dr. Mohan Kumar for joining us on the Parley and from the Hindu team here. I'm Sahasini Heather. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>